0: Yes, welcome back to the Lars Resort. Still a podcast with myself, Lars Everson, still brought to you by Betson. We are edging ever closer to the end of the season. Don't let that concern you, though. The resort stays open. There will be some kind of action in the resort over the summer, as as is appropriate for a resort, I suppose. Summer is high time for the resort. Uh, you know, the, the the games might be coming to an end, but there's all kinds of nonsense, like... I don't know what transfer rumours we can do. I've got some ideas. I've got some ideas. It'll it'll be good. Don't, don't worry about that. Uh, it's the Thursday afternoon. Weather's pretty decent. It was cloudy earlier today in London. It's starting to get nicer now. Look like we could have a nice evening um, where I can go for a, for an evening stroll with with the dog, uh, which I'm uh, very much back doing at uh, you know a daily basis now, which is what you should. Uh, it's taken me a while. Really, I, I just passed the one year anniversary from for, for snapping my leg last year and it, it really has been pretty much until now until I'm really like feeling it's it's getting to be okay again. So it's, it's been a bit of a long road, but definitely getting here. Um, now, so that's nice. There's been football. there's been football everyone and I think we need to start with the big Sam update. Yeah, yeah, I know Man City have won the league. Yeah, I, I guess that is exciting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I'm I'm pushing off the big Man City chat for 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 the main reason that they're they're probably also going to win uh, at least one more thing, like the, the the FA Cup, the the Champions League. You give them a pretty fair chance. And the thing about this, if we've had the big Man City conversation. When that happens, what else will there be to talk about? Not that much. See, I've done this a few times before. I'm not entirely fresh to the the pod game. So the, the 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 big city chat is is on its way. I just want to hold it off until everything else is stopped and there's nothing more to chat about. But for now, there is a big Sam update. I think. I think we have to talk about Big Sam. it's, it's been it's been good having him back, Big Sam. He is box office, as they say. Uh, big Sam. Uh, so far has, you know, he opened up big by declaring his greatness, by declaring that there's nobody ahead of me in football terms, not Pep or Klopp, not Arteta. They do what they do. I do what I do. But in terms of depth of knowledge, I am up there with them. I'm not saying I'm better than them, but I'm as good as them, declared uh, Big Sam, which which caused all the obvious headlines. Um but it should be no surprise to anyone who's ever uh, listened to Big Sam do sort of media work when he's been out of, well, when he's not been managing. You know, he, he's repeatedly uh, talked about how if he was named Sam Alarici, he'd been in charge of, of a top club by now. And he even said that quite recently in the uh, amazingly titled No Tippy Tappy Football podcast that he was on. Uh, which, which, by the way, has continued. The No Tippy Tappy Football Podcast is out there waiting. And uh, when um, when Big Sam went to Leeds, he was of, he was replaced. Who was he replaced? He was replaced by Tim Sherwood. Tim Sherwood replaces Sam Aldice on the Tippy Tappy Football Podcast. Now that is a headline that has a lot of stuff going on uh, to it. Uh, but uh, either way, he did say. He did say on the Tippy Tappy Football uh, podcast, "the no Tippy." Imagine if he was on the Tippy Tappy Football podcasts, he would hate it there. Just all short passes all the time. Sam Sam would know what to do with himself. But he said it again. If I was named Sam Aladicio, uh, I would have gone right to the top. And and he does say it, and it's clearly slightly tongue in cheek. But he's also said it so many times over the years. And judging by his sort of general other things, he says, I think it's pretty clear that he means this, or at least think that there's some uh, some truth to it. Uh, but then he followed that up in this case, uh, his sort of declaration of genius. He followed that up uh, when he was asked how far he could have taken Newcastle, you know, ahead of the Newcastle game, because, of course, that's also one of his former employers. And he, he cheerfully uh, replied, no, you had, a, you had a big enough headline off me last week. You're not going to get any more. By the way... All those who criticised me about that sounded a bit thick, didn't they? When all I was doing was diverting off the players onto myself, which is a great tactic I picked off of Sir Alex Ferguson. There was no pressure on the players because I took it all. I took all the stick. Oh, look at him. Listen to him. But there's none of that this week. It's all focusing on Newcastle and trying to get the three points that we need, said Sam. I'm I'm quoting, it's not always easy quoting Big Sam, because I can't do the voice. I wish I could do voices, I just can't. Um, Anyway, that's what he said. And, you know, first of all, Big Sam... That week they were playing Man City. Like there was no pressure on the players anyway. You'd just taken over. They were playing Man City. No one expected them to get anything from that game aside from like thumped. So I, there was no pressure to take off the players. That week however, when he sort of revealed uh, the great diversion of your tactics of Big Sam, they were playing Newcastle at home, also a difficult game. But clearly more pressure on them to get a result, one of their few precious home games, before the end of the season. So if you're going to divert pressure away from the players by saying something crazy, that would have been the week to do it, not the week before. Doesn't make a lot of sense. I guess he secured more headlines by declaring that everything I said last week was a load of nonsense and everyone who believed me were a bit thick. I mean, I suppose that is also headline-grabbing. Um, but I also think it's not really how Diversion works. I mean, I might be wrong. I don't typically go to magic shows. But do, like, David Copperfield, uh, if he's still around, like Penn and Teller, these guys, do they immediately, like, explain after a trick, ta-da, this is, this is how we did it. Do they just go, whoop, it's a mirror over there. Or, this thing has a false floor. It was a cow all along. I mean, uh, do they, you know, explain this? I don't think that's how uh, Diversions really were. Certainly not. Uh, what Sir Alex Ferguson used to do. He, he never really said something completely insane one week and then turned around the next week going, ah, you idiots, you took me seriously, didn't you? Like, that that's not a big Sir Alex Ferguson uh, strategy or tactic. So confusing stuff for, from Big Sam there. But then he made some much more soulful comments uh, the other week. I thought about AI, uh, which he was talking about. Uh, because, they, because they, they got onto the sort of terrible social media abuse that Patrick Bamford uh, in particular has suffered after missing a penalty. And he spoke very well, I thought, about how this sort of behavior needs to stop and it would be good if the police could do a bit more. Before it all took a left turn and, and, and Sam said, I do, I do fear for our life as an old-timer now. I fear for our life with social media and what it's bringing to the world. I know there's great stuff about that, but you know AI... I just heard about 40,000 jobs going from BT. So what are they going to do? Now, first of all, I'm not sure social media, AI, not entirely the same thing. This is just a general sort of concern about technology. But, but you know, I, th- I think he's onto to something. He says, Big Sam, so the next piece of AI comes in, another 30,000 jobs go. What are they going to do? And so for me, it's not a great future, uh, he says. Uh, it's not a great future. We're looking at the world and what we're doing with climate change. I mean, it's very all-compassing, this from Sam. Uh, being worried about both social media, AI, and climate change. But but I get what he's saying. I think it's a very good observation. If AI and, and, and various other technological things come in and make a lot of people's jobs redundant, I think we as a society do need to have a think- about what all those people are going to be. You can't just kind of make posters where it says maybe retrain for cyber. Like a lot of people aren't going to be able to do that. So so, so that, that's, uh, yeah, uh, f- full props to Big Sam for voicing uh, this concern. And b- before we leave Sam Allardyce, I don't want to turn this into like a total microanalysis of everything Sam Allardyce has said so far, but it just my ears pricked up a little bit. He said after the West Ham game, "'Lots of people said, I was mad to take the job. "'I am not mad. I love football, "'and it was too big a job to turn down, "'no matter how short it was.'" But no one said that, Sam. Not one person said Sam is mad to take the job. What we all said, I think, is he's being offered very, very good money to manage four games. And if they go down, the managers who came before him will get the blame. There's zero downside for Sam. But whatever else is going on, you know, didn't get the result he wanted. Probably going down, at least he found a fiver on the ground. So so, so there is that. As things stand, they will need uh, to win their last game and hope that Everton loses. And if, if Everton draw leads, need to win by three goals or some such... And Leicester has to fail to win at home at, against West Ham for, for for any of that to matter. And if Leicester beat West Ham, uh, their goal difference means that Leeds uh, can't catch them. So it's not looking great for Leeds. Um, Leicester's goal difference means that they actually stay up if they win and Everton draw. So that's, uh, you know, for any, any people who still have hopes for Leicester, that's, uh, I, I guess that's why Leicester were content to sort of sit back and hope for a point against Newcastle on Monday night. I did see a few comments going, um, do, do Leicester know they're in the relegation zone? Because uh, that was a fairly unambitious performance for them, uh, to say the least. But they did know that a point kept them alive for the final day in, in some kind of uh, shape or form, whereas if they'd gotten no points in that game, they, they, that would have been it, right? And they were away to Newcastle, a very, very difficult game. So I, I guess that, that point keeps them alive. Uh, and they do have the goal difference on Leeds. Uh, so with the draw for Everton and Leicester to win, they will stay up. So it could be a dramatic final day of the season. Because I, I feel these last games, I feel like they're all quite open. Now, I, but I looked at how Betson have, have priced these. And and, and first of all, Betson have Leeds at 1.03 to get relegated. So that that's all done, pretty much, says the odds compilers at Betson. And Leicester City are at 1.15 so they really don't think so. They, they've set the odds that Everton going down at 4.0. Uh, so according to odds compilers, this is an almost pointless conversation because they believe it's more or less over that Everton will do this. The only thing I'd say to that, are we totally sure Everton won't lose to Bournemouth? Like I know Bournemouth are on the beach. I know they've lost three on the bounce now, but Bournemouth have also won three out of the last four away from home, right? You'd think with the team firmly on the beach uh you know they've got the sandals they've got the umbrella drinks you know there's a boombox there playing some reggaeton that's that's bournemouth everton on the other hand just absolutely desperate for points so you would think that would be okay but but bournemouth can be awkward they're, they're content to sit back There they they can be uh, compact they, they have a bit of a pace that can they can hurt you on the break Everton will likely be without Dominic Calvert-Lewin, I think, is the, the most recent news from there. They've had games this season where they just haven't been able to score. Uh, only Southampton and Wolves have scored fewer than Everton this this season. So I can imagine a game here uh, where Bournemouth sit deep, Everton can't quite get their goal. Let's say Leicester take the lead in their game. Eh, suddenly things start to get a bit nervy, and boom! Bournemouth counter Is that very hard to imagine? I don't think so. So... I guess the problem is that the whole Leicester City winning part of this equation, that's kind of more difficult to imagine, uh, I, I guess. West Ham also on the beach, but we did see against Leeds that even on the beach and with a rotated team, they're more uh, more than capable of just crushing the hopes and dreams of a team near the bottom. And I actually suspect that West Ham will go with a near enough full-strength team here because there is quite a big gap uh, between last week, and and, and the semi-final in the Europa Conference League, and the eventual final in the Conference League, so if you don't play your your main guys in this game, it's actually quite a lot of time without a game for them so I think just in terms of keeping them in the rhythm I think you maybe want to risk injury if that, is, I mean that is a risk but still you think you want to give them the minutes uh, bets on have priced Leicester to win at 1.98 in this game and I can tell you I am not touching that at all <laughs> in betting terms in fact I am almost more tempted to go the other way around and say that a double chance on West Ham or draw because West Ham are I think they're going to play a strongish team. Yes, they're on the beach, but what they're good at is you know sitting quite deep and hitting people on the counter and on set pieces. Those are things Leicester have not been good at defending against uh, this season, it was one of the many things Leicester haven't been very good at defending against. So, so I think that that game is is very very open. And lastly, Leeds, what chance have Leeds? Close to zero according to odds compilers, but they are playing Tottenham, who seem capable of messing things up against literally anyone right now. The the, the only thing is, Leeds need to win and hope that Leicester don't win and that Everton lose, right? These are all things that could happen uh, if Everton draw Leeds have to win by three goals or more. Now, can Leeds score a bunch of goals against a hapless Tottenham side? Yes, I think they can. The problem is down the other end. Can Leeds keep a clean sheet against Tottenham? Probably not, because Harry Kane is somehow uh, having one of the best seasons uh, of uh, of his career. I would say if you, I mean, he scored more goals in other seasons. There was that year he had a crazy number of assists as well. But if you just compare, like this is just a maelstrom of just sewage that is Tottenham at the moment. It's like an English river after after the government just kind of gave all the, the comp- water companies green light to dump crap everywhere. This is what, what Tottenham is like at the moment. And somehow, in the middle of that, uh, Harry Kane is having a great, great season. Leeds have conceded the most goals in the league for a reason. So even if Leeds can do something in attack in this game, you don't really see them keeping a clean sheet. So listen, of course, Everton are most likely to stay up the way things stand. But at the same time, they are Everton. So uh, just to make this exciting on the final day, since I am constantly wrong about Everton, and it just always seems to happen, whenever I think Everton are going to do well, they explode, whenever I think they're doomed, they do something good. So I'm just going to confidently predict that Everton will stay up, they'll beat Bournemouth easily... And we all know what happens now. I'm taking one for the team here. I'm going to look silly, but I'm calling it. Everton to stay up comfortably. And this whole relegation chat we just had, mostly a waste of time. What is not a waste of time, hopefully, is looking at Newcastle a little bit. Newcastle are in the Champions League. Well done to them. Um, they're ahead of schedule, is how I would describe that. It's better than I I predicted. I think I had them seventh in my sort of uh, in my preseason predictions because my my read on Newcastle was that you know this was going to be the season where they establish themselves as sort of the best of the rest, and and then one more transfer summer, and then the season after you start to really attack the top six as it were. Now, in terms of Newcastle finishing in the top four, uh, troubling the top six, I guess it kind of helps that you have Chelsea having a catastrophic season, Tottenham having a, a, a very, very bad season, and, and Liverpool also for a long time having a bad season before kind of turning it on a little bit towards the end. Three teams kind of dealing themselves out of that conversation. That That certainly helps. But it would be... Uh, you know, a little bit uh, disingenuous to to point to that as the main reason why why Newcastle have made the Champions League because Newcastle have just been very good. And and one thing I like to do at this uh, time of the season is to look at the teams uh, that the XG goal difference they have. Uh, basically, take the, uh, the 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 XG scored minus the XG conceded and and sort of do, uh, divide that by the number of games uh, played, so you get it by by, by per ninety minutes uh, and. If you rank the teams according to the sort of xG goal difference per game, unsurprisingly Manchester City are comfortably uh, in front of everyone else because they're Manchester City, and in the end uh, that has uh, you know quality has won out in in that regard. But second in the league, not Arsenal as you might expect, actually Newcastle. Newcastle have got the second best xG difference per game in the division so far this season, which was a surprise. Uh, I, I didn't really expect that. They're, they've actually... Uh, but it is the defensive side of it, I think, that really kicks in because Arsenal's defence has been quite iffy since the World Cup, as we've spoken about. So Newcastle have got the second-best defence uh, and the third-best attack, the second-most the second prolific attack in the Premier League in terms of generating XG, Brighton. who just have the sort of, I guess, the Brighton penalty of not having elite strikers yet. Uh, We'll get to Evan Ferguson later, Uh, so so that kind of holds them back a bit. But actually, if you look at the underlying numbers, the XG, which, you know, as we always say, they're not some sort of alternate reality they're not some sort of textbook this is what actually should have happened but they do give you an indication and, and put it that way about newcastle if you're second in your xg goal difference after 37 games you definitely deserve to be top four there's no doubt about that at all uh, how have they done this well from the summer of 2019 and onwards they've had the uh, fifth highest net spend in the world uh, behind Chelsea, United, Arsenal, and Spurs, so, so, so clearly you have to say money has has played a part here. Uh, but but there's no doubt that they're ahead of schedule. They have a nice mix of sort of good players who who a lot of big teams were after or certainly knew about and were looking at, uh, but that you were able to convince to come to Newcastle because they have kind of an exciting uh, sporting project going on there. Uh, Bruno Guimaraes, Sven Botman, Alexander Isak, I suppose you would say uh, Trippier fits into that category as, as well. And then they have a couple of players like Almiron and uh, Joelinton, who were good uh, before they went to Newcastle and were signed for pretty big transfer fees but who weren't being utilised in in a good way at all uh, before and just needed a better coach uh, in, in Eddie Howe to sort of unlock their potential. I remember... Uh, speaking to Andy Brassel for the OG uh, pod about Jalen Ton when they signed him. And Andy was basically saying, you know, good player, works hard, but he needs goal scorers around him because on his own he doesn't score a lot of goals. And I think they've overpaid a bit, was in a nutshell what Andy Brassel said about him. And Newcastle, they just stuck him up front on his own, gave him no help at all, and just went, why is this very expensive striker not scoring loads of goals? And it was just a classic classic case of a Premier League club just spending a lot of money on a player without really understanding what his strengths and weaknesses are Eddie Howe, very intelligently uh, identified that this guy is not a great finisher or, or have the tools to be a great number nine. But he does have a lot of the qualities that you want in, in a box-to-box midfielder. So that's been a huge success, uh, in turning him into midfield, of course. Uh, Miguel Almiron thrived in a very sort of Bielsa-like team that was coached uh, by Tata Martino in MLS. Very high press, you know, used all that energy he has to win the ball high up the field. He got a lot of opportunities to shoot and try to do things around the box. Newcastle bring him in and they spend all their time sitting back so he never gets the ball anywhere near the box whenever Almiron got the ball he'd be like 50 yards from goal and with a team around him that has no like possession structure at all and it was like all right Miggy good luck just try to dribble a bunch of people and score on your own I guess and it turns out that that was very difficult for him but of course it makes sense. When Newcastle, under Eddie Howe, when they change the way they play, they start playing with a high press. And then Almiron is perfectly suited to that because he works super hard off the ball. And, as it turns out, uh, as soon as Newcastle actually spends some more time around the opponent's box, suddenly Almiron starts getting you goals. Who, who would have thunk it? It turns out that, like, stranding your players 50 yards from goal, it makes it harder for them to, to score goals occasionally compared to if you can win the ball high up the field more often. Uh, this, this makes uh, a lot of sense to me, certainly. So, so Newcastle, they have this combination of some really good players that they brought in for for some significant money but you know they haven't they haven't exactly been galactico signings either and they've picked up some signings that they they had from before that just kind of had quality but weren't being used correctly i wonder if you can actually put fabian share in that category as well. Because it always occurred to me that he looked really classy when he played for Switzerland, but often kind of looked a bit lost at Newcastle before the takeover. So he also has sort of raised his level as the level around him has has been raised, I suppose you could say. And then you have a sort of mix of of of, of, of decent squad players like Dan Byrne and like Longstaff and Jacob Murphy and, and these guys. So the balance there seems really good. And there was a period uh, when they were struggling for goals uh but but then Alexander Isak really got going and that helped uh team spirit and and, and unity just seems really good and and it must be an exhilarating feeling i think for the players uh, because they all must know like the sky is the limit here now and they're on this upwards journey for as long as they're uh welcome uh, on the elevator i i suppose because the thing i'm wondering about now is is how what happens when Eddie Howe needs to start being ruthless, you know? Because if you're looking at improving this team, which, of course, you have to, uh, you have to set your uh, targets higher than, than this. I think if the ownership is is willing to back them, there are infinite resources there. Uh, whether that comes in the shape of straight-up backing from the owners or in sort of deals with Saudi-affiliated uh, uh, companies, as we've seen with, with Manchester City, either way, the target uh, for a project like this should be at, to reach the very very top right and for that some of these guys who are on the journey now who are having a good time on the bus might not be able to come with them to to the mountaintop you know they're gonna have to be a bit ruthless and i'm intrigued to see if that's something eddie Howe has in him can he go from being like a inclusive eddie to being brutal eddie uh, that's an interesting challenge for him uh, in the years coming uh, forward the giant elephant in the room here is of course that it means two of the four Champions League entrants from England in the next season will be state projects. Is that good? Well, it's certainly the future... Uh, As long as this kind of ownership is allowed and whatever spending limitations that exist remain ineffectual, you you are kind of relying on those teams being mismanaged for for there to be any excitement uh, near the top of the league. I mean, the league has now been won five out of the last six seasons by one club that's backed by a Petro State. Uh, So I guess from that perspective, getting one more could be good because then you have two clubs... With sort of infinite wealth, that can kind of battle it out for the league. Uh, maybe that's more interesting than just having one of them. I don't know. There is, of course, a possibility that uh, Saudi Arabia don't want to spend quite as much money on football. Uh, it could be possible that the people in charge of Newcastle aren't quite as uh, competent as Ferran Soriano and Chiki Bagherstan and the lads at Man City and it's also possible if not probable that Eddie Howe isn't exactly Pep Guardiola but in the big picture in football money tends to win out right Uh, and and we've had in modern times we've had two clubs that have been bought by uh, massively rich benefactors like this who were prepared to spend a lot of money to get them to the top we had that in Chelsea we had that in Man City both ended up winning things soon enough so I would expect the same uh, from Newcastle Uh, at some point Uh, whether that is probably not next year but within four or five years probably that's kind of where Newcastle are are most likely heading now uh, is is it a great thing for the Premier League that you're allowing a country like Saudi Arabia to to use its competition to to whitewash their their public image? I don't know. Like, never mind the beheadings. Here's Alexander Isak. I mean, that's that's not a great place for the Premier League to be. I, I, I don't think. Uh, but it is totally in line, unfortunately, with the sort of values that underpin uh, modern Britain. I, I recommend. Uh, A book by the title, A Butler to the World, uh, with then the the subheader, uh, How Britain Became the Servant of Tycoons, Tax Dodgers, Kleptocrats and Criminals, uh, by a gentleman named Oliver Bullough. I mean, Britain is open for business. If you have money, it's all good. Like London, frequently described as the money laundering capital of the world. Why shouldn't England... And English cultural institutions like the Premier League also pivot to becoming the image laundering capital of the world. It makes perfect sense uh, in that context, even if it is a little bit uh, depressing. Now, if that is a downbeat uh, note to end on with with Newcastle, can I just recommend that you read this week's column by Alan Shearer? definitely written by Alan Shearer. ...in The Athletic. I, I I adore The Athletic. I think they're great. I think they employ some tremendous people. I really enjoy their output. But, but I have to say, with affection, this is one of the most unhinged pieces of writing I've ever seen in my life... Uh, ...by Alan Scherer. Definitely written by Alan Scherer. I'm, I'm not going to go through it all, but, but this thing just kind of caught my eye... ...because in the tweet it said, uh, Dear Eddie, thank you for allowing us to reclaim our streets... I think, what? Have, who Reclaim your streets from whom? Were, were there like roving gangs of Mike Ashley sympathizers wearing like Sports Direct gear? Like, what? what's happening here? It, it says, people smiling, restaurants buzzing, bars buzzing, the entire city, a beehive of buzzing. Uh, connected to the club again, alive and awash with happiness. So I guess it's more the streets have been reclaimed from the concept of sadness uh which which i guess is fair enough listen god knows i've written enough bad articles in my time and i will continue to write many bad ones so uh, i'll be throwing a lot of stones in a big glass house by by taking the piss too much here but but there's some stuff like uh, one paragraph here like thank you for this version of newcastle united um, writes, definitely Alan Scher, which one which plays angry and plays loud, which runs and keeps running until lungs explode and legs collapse, and then runs on empty until there's nowhere left to run. Thank you for this regal fury. I mean, regal fury is certainly a phrase to use here. I mean, I don't know. when you're. Is that a phrase you want to turn to when you're writing about a club that's kind of owned by a kingdom that's accused of murdering people? I feel like there are other phrases that could have been used here. Alan, uh, when I hear regal fury in conjunction with Saudi Arabia, I have to say, my first thought isn't Joey Linton closing someone down. If you know what I mean, like the regal, the regal fury of Saudi Arabia tends to have uh, much more severe consequences for whoever it is uh, visited upon. But listen, I'm going on a bit here, but but I would uh, having having made fun of it a little bit. I would recommend checking out this piece of writing, uh, which is definitely written by Alan Scherer. Uh, It Says so right on the byline. Must be Alan Scherer. uh because. You know it gives you a sort of glimpse into the, the uh, a mentality, I guess it'd be unfair to say the mentality of Newcastle and the fan base because I don't think they're all uh, quite this unhinged, but uh, it's certainly something it's a piece of writing I did not expect to see on that website or really any other website uh, but here we are Brighton. Uh, On a more upbeat note, Brighton. uh, What a joyous game of of football uh, Brighton versus Man City actually was. Brighton just kind of going out there and playing... Like, defensively, City are averaging seven shots against per game in the league. So people don't tend to get a lot of change out of Man City because uh, they just they get swamped. But Brighton went out there, and they had 20 shots in the game, so many chances. And we're just really youthful team. With, like, Colwell in defense is 20, Van Hecht next to him is is, is 22, Gilmore and Casedo in midfield both 21, Bunanot is 18, and Ciso is 19. So, like, we talked a lot about Southampton uh, in the other episode. I guess this is roughly what they were hoping to do, right? Like get a lot of uh, young players, some very unheralded. Look at the data. Try to be cleverer than everyone. I, I guess they just needed a stronger uh, foundation to build on, uh, something more akin to what Brighton have. And and also, I guess Southampton don't have Roberto Di Zerbi in charge, or or Graham Potter before that, by the way. But w- what Brighton also have. Is is eighteen year old Evan Ferguson who just looks terrific up up front. I, I, we should always try not to get too carried away by uh, by young strikers who score some goals. And, uh, obviously, every everyone gets excited by that, and and it's something we should try to like tone tone it down a bit. But but I have to say, I, I'm getting really good vibes from Evan Ferguson. Uh, watching him play, he just strikes the ball very cleanly, very powerfully. He's obviously strong, but I think he moves really well for his size. I, I like that he gets his shots on target. Uh, you know, even some of the goals have been shots that were close to, or even straight at, the goalkeeper. But he puts so much behind them they they end up going in. I looked at the numbers here. Fifty percent of his shots this season has been on target, which puts him in the sort of top ten percentile of of strikers in the Big Five leagues. So he's unusually good at keeping his shots on the frame. I think that's a big, very important thing. There is something slightly Kane esque, I think about the way he's just he's just a little bit faster than he looks and the way he sort of moves and strikes the ball definitely a touch of the young harry kane i think from evan ferguson not saying he's going to be that good obviously but but exciting times especially given how brighton have sort of been longing for an elite level uh, striker definitely want to watch uh, for, for next season on a less serious note Evan Ferguson, now there's a young man who looks like he enjoys a good steak. You know, a lot of footballers these days, they look like they eat sort of lentils and kale all the time. Reckon Evan Ferguson knows his way around a good steak, and and I appreciate him uh, for that. On the subject of of Harry Kane, lastly, it's going on a bit now, unsurprisingly, the pod, um, reports this week on the sort of transfer gossip side uh, that Eric Ten Hag is obsessed with them, and that United are going to move early to avoid a saga developing. Now, I actually wonder, I mean, I, I don't think they'll sell them early in the window, you know, Tottenham, I think that would be a weird move, because then everyone else would know that you have a ton of money and a desperate need to, to buy some players. I think strategically that would not be the, the, the way to do it. Uh, but more generally speaking, you've got to wonder if the time has actually come uh, for Tottenham it, it would depend on him a little bit he has one more left on the deal maybe he just completes that deal and then he probably has a broader range of options to choose from uh, next summer. From Tottenham's perspective, I guess what you're hoping is that you go into the new season, whoever starts in charge of the club does so well and they win a bunch of games and everyone starts feeling good and like, what if Tottenham can be great again uh, or great just in general and, and maybe Kane is convinced to to, to renew, but th- that is a big, big gamble. I- I'm not massively convinced that that is, is realistic so so it does kind of depend what you do this summer on the size of the actual offers that come in because Kane has shown... Uh, since he kind of tried and failed to force his way out of the club that if he can't get that he will get his head down and do his job and play very well Uh, so you could hang on to him for that last year that might be an option that suits both parties because having Kane increases your chances of of getting to the Champions League by by quite a lot I mean, and, and any offer this summer would have to reflect that it is worth quite a lot of money to just have him for one more year for Tottenham but what I am very curious about is how does Daniel Levy come into all of this? You know, to what extent does the PR side of it? the uh, factor in for Daniel Levy because he's currently a fairly unpopular man with the fan base. I think it's fair to say things are not going very well. Uh, you get people holding up these sort of daft sort of profit over glory banners. Like, I mean th- there is plenty you can criticize Levy for, but since the summer of 2018 Tottenham have had the fourth highest net spend on the planet. I don't think Spurs are sacrificing sporting success in terms of, of money. If you think that you're just not paying attention. And uh, there's the other thing here, by the way, in In modern club football, money isn't just a route to glory. It is the only route to glory. So, of course, Tottenham have to be run in a financially prudent way. That is obvious. If you think Levy trying to keep the wage bill under control and trying not to overpay for people is bad, my God, you should see what happens to the club if he didn't do those things. Believe me, it's not pretty. Uh, But but anyway, I digress. We've had this conversation. My point is, uh, how does this all affect... Uh, kane's future if kane is refusing to uh, re-sign a contract sign a new contract under any circumstance and a big enough offer comes in at some point selling becomes the right decision but but by most sort of ways of looking at it but i do wonder if levy is a bit wary of just becoming the man who sold harry kane because inevitably there would be a backlash to that you know the whole profit before glory nonsense would come out Even if the alternative is just letting him run out his contract and just leave, which would not be very glorious for the club either. They will gloriously fail to collect any kind of income from Harry Kane leaving the club. But at least then Levy can say, oh, we did everything we could to keep him, but in the end, Harry wanted to leave. and So you can kind of put it on Kane. And for Levy, that might be better PR-wise, even if it'd be, you know, obviously worse for the club but the, the the whole problem with having this conversation and i can see why a lot of people are having it right now there are two variables which we just don't have the answer to right now first of all what kind of transfer fee can you actually get for him in this summer and b do you think there's any chance of him signing a new deal do you think that has the uh, do you think the percentage chance of that has dropped all the way to zero Those are two factors that you kind of have to know or have a handle on before you can form an opinion about what Tottenham should do. But I'm certainly sort of trending towards with one year to go, if he absolutely doesn't want to stay, maybe it's time to take the money and that'll be better than getting no money uh, 12 months from now. And, and whoever... I mean, it's a, it's a rebuild year anyway. Whoever comes in is going to have to try to, to build something. Yes, it would be helpful for him to have Harry Kane, but, but he would also have a Harry Kane who's only there for a year. Uh, so, so maybe just rip off the Band-Aid and, and start again. Uh, I and mean, Maybe that'll be the way to do it. But it is very difficult, I think, for Levy to to make himself even more the bad guy and, and make himself the man who sold Harry Kane. You, you can imagine for Daniel Levy that is when he's already being accused of being more interested in money than a sporting success to actually have to be the face of selling Harry Kane you can see why he might not want that so uh, for, for his own sort of uh, for his own <laughs> image it might be better to just let Kane run out the contract even again I repeat that would almost certainly be worse for the club we will see Uh, what ends up happening. Betting bit at the end, at the very, very end. I'm writing uh, the weekend betting preview after I've edited and published this, but uh, already I can say that one thing stands up, and you know what? I'm going to ride this horse until it keels over and dies. Uh, Both teams to score in Leeds versus Tottenham. You know, Leeds have to do something... Tottenham always score and almost always concede. Uh, Ten out of Tottenham's last 11 games have gone both teams to score. Can a desperate Leeds team penetrate this Tottenham defence? Yes, they can. I think most people can penetrate this Tottenham defence. Can this Leeds defence keep Harry Kane and the boys out? No, I don't think they can. And 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 the odds reflect this. The price on BTTS both teams to score is actually just 146, which is very low indeed. But... If we slap on over two and a half goals, then we'll... And I think we'll get more than two goals here. I don't think this is ending 1-1. That takes us to 175, and I think that's fine. I think that's a perfectly decent bet this weekend. I even think... I mean, Spurs are such a mess, but they can score goals. Leeds are a dumpster fire defensively, but they have to go for it. So I even think like over three and a half goals at two. Thirty-four, I think the price is. I think that could be in play here, uh, the the way it's going. But, but I'm going to go slightly more cautiously, as we often do in the betting segment. I'm a bit of a cautious uh, tipster in in that regard. I find that being a little bit conservative it often works out well in in the long run. So both teams to score and over two and a half uh, goals at a price of one seventy-one. But do consider over three and a half because I I, uh, I predict chaos I mean sitting back just doesn't make any sense for Leeds here, they have to go for it they, they have some stuff going forward they can't defend, Tottenham can't defend, we should have goals is what I'm thinking that, that was it! That ended up being long. Uh, i got to just stop. I've got to just embrace the fact that these episodes, that's how they go. Either just give myself fewer talking points or, uh, you know, there's no point having this as a, a weekly sort of I go, wow, that episode was longer than I thought it was going to be. At some point, I must realize this is, this is how long they end up being or just make them shorter. I don't know. Write into at Lars Everson on Twitter. What do you think about the very long uh, episodes? They could be shorter. Shorter and more of them, possibly. Maybe that's the way to go. Uh, either way, thanks for keeping me company. Enjoy the last match day of the Premier League season. And uh, I'll, uh, we'll, we'll speak again soon, I, I hope.